0: Welcome to The Loop Podcast, where we are transforming education in plastic surgery since 2020.
1: Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Loop. For our audience, this episode is a continuation of our two-part burn reconstruction mini-series. In Episode 7, we discuss pathophysiology and classification of burns, important equations for burn management, and treatment of various types of burn injuries. If you have not done so already, we recommend listening to part one of this mini-series prior to today's episode. I would like to welcome back our hosts, Dr. Brian Basiri-Tirani and Dr. Casey Sheck. Now let's get started. Casey, you finished last week's episode by reviewing chemical burns. Let's pick up today with some additional burn-related injuries.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the next one we should go over is an adjunct to burns is carbon monoxide poisoning. Brian, you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Typical presentation is usually in a patient that has a major burn in the head and neck area with singed eyebrows, coarse breath sounds, but normal oxygenation. The normal oxygen saturation may throw you off, but that is usually expected in carbon monoxide poisoning as the carbon monoxide binds to the hemoglobin, making carboxyhemoglobin. And in the body, that's being mistaken for oxyhemoglobin and oxygen saturations are falsely elevated. The diagnosis is confirmed with obtaining carboxyhemoglobin levels. However, given that these patients' airways are almost always at risk, you must start by immediately securing the airway by intubating endotracheally with 100% FiO2 on the vent. The high FiO2 oxygen will dissociate the carbon monoxide molecule from the hemoglobin. Another adjunct to treatment is hyperbaric oxygen, or HBO it's a proposed treatment to help with it. But like I said, these patients are usually in dire straits. And if they have a major burn, you're not going to be sending it off to the hyperbaric oxygen chamber in critical state. We've talked about all the different kinds of burns, except for frostbite. And we see quite a bit of that in Chicago. But in case you want to talk a little bit about frostbite,
0: Yeah, frostbite's a pretty interesting topic and a little different, but uh, usually falls into the category of burns and treated at burn centers for such a reason. The mechanism that you end up with tissue damage is formation of ice crystals, which you would think. However, the ice crystals are both intra- and extracellular. Extracellular ice crystals actually form in the osmotic pressure increases, pulling water out of the cells. It leads to intracellular dehydration and then increase in intracellular electrolytes, proteins, and enzymes that eventually lead to cell death. Additionally, there is a vascular endothelial damage component to this. This leads to intravascular thrombosis and decreased blood flow. When you have this, you end up having some AV shunting or arteriovenous shunting at the capillary level, which leads to end organ tissue damage because you're not actually delivering the oxygenated blood to the end organs. During the rewarming process, there is an influx of fluid back into the cells causing intracellular swelling. The rewarming process allows reflow vasodilation and reactive hyperemia to occur, leading to increased inflammatory mediators. This can cause cell death on its own, so it's pretty uh, difficult to deal with. But to rewarm these frostbite injuries, Brian, do you want to walk us through kind of how to do that? Sure. Yeah. So
1: frostbite injuries and extremities should be rapidly rewarmed in water, running water at a temperature of 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius. I used to think that that number was arbitrary, but I've actually encountered certain questions where they ask, like, under water that's as warm, as hot as possible. But it really is a, a narrow range. You don't want it too hot. It's really 104 degrees Fahrenheit, 40 degrees Celsius. Typically, the rewarming should be done in 20 to 30 minutes. There are some other adjuncts that you can use for therapy like anti-inflammatory medications and anticoagulants, but usually rapid rewarming is the most important thing. Usually you need to be a little patient to allow the frostbite injury to demarcate itself before determining which areas need to be debrided and which areas don't. Now for a quick recap of burn dressings, I'm going to start with going over a few of these. A lot of these have unique side effects and those side effects are almost always tested if not this year, then next year. It's like an in-service favorite for absite and for plastic surgery in-service. So let's start with silver sulfadiazine. In liquid solution, or it could be as an ointment that's known as silvadine, it's unable to penetrate the wound bed. It stays at the surface epithelium since the silver ions bind to the surface proteins and cannot penetrate scar or cartilage. It's not effective against pseudomonas and enteric bacteria It covers fungi, candida, albicans, and it has antimicrobial effects lasting up to 24 hours. Bismuth is another heavy metal with antimicrobial properties. That's usually what you see in Xeroform, and that works by disrupting the biofilm formation by inhibiting polysaccharide capsule production in bacteria. It's enhanced when compounded with thiol uh, chelators. The most important side effect for the silvadene is reversible neutropenia. It usually improves within a few days after stopping it, but this is a very high yield point that I cannot emphasize enough. Let's move on to sulfamylon. Casey, you want to go over some of the side effects and how that works?
0: Yeah. So sulfamylon, the actual name of mafenide acetate. So one of the things you're all going to answer for this is it is very effective at penetrating eschar and cartilage, especially to prevent uh, suppurative chondritis in the ears. So burnt ears usually go with sulfamylon for the cartilage and then any heavy eschars, you can use this as well. It's a BID application. And the big side effect for this is metabolic acidosis. So mafenide acetate metabolic acidosis. The reason behind that is actually mafenide acetate is metabolized to sulfur benzoic acid, which is actually a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. And that's why you lead to metabolic acidosis, the same thing that carbonic anhydrase inhibitors will give you. Next up, another silver. You want to go to silver nitrate, Brian? Yeah.
1: Yeah, sure. So silver nitrate, you can use if the patient's allergic to sulfa. It does have poor penetration. It's hypotonic. It can leach out calcium, sodium, and potassium and the side effect where there's a risk, rather, of meth hemoglobinemia. Do you want to talk about Acticote?
0: Yes, Acticote is a uh, topical application of a dressing that you need to add sterile water to activate the ions on it, leading to both antibacterial for gram positive and gram negative, and also has antifungal uh, capabilities as well. One other dressing for burns that, Brian, you can talk about real quick, is just the wound vac that we all use for tons of things, but yeah. we use it in burn patients too.
1: Yeah, good old-fashioned wound vac or negative pressure. So it's the most effective way to fixate an autograft. It's also beneficial because it helps remove exudate and the excess fluid, which helps promote local perfusion and is a good way to reliably you know, not only keep the graft in place, but also wick away the excess fluid and you know the fluid that otherwise may cause this aroma. All of these factors help with improved graft survival, and there are studies that have shown that VAC is superior to the bolster, the dry gauze, and compression. So really, VAC is shown to be really the best type of method to fixate your grafts. Let's go on to skin substitutes. Do you want to start with cultured epidermal grafts?
0: Yeah, absolutely. These are, are kind of newer over the last, I would say, probably five to 10 years, cultured epidermal autographs, so you're taking small, very small portions of skin from your burn patient and they're actually being sent to a lab to be cultured. This is option for a patient with a very high total body surface area that doesn't have very many options for coverage otherwise some of the downsides they're expensive they're very expensive it lacks a dermis so they're very fragile and it does contain calf serum baby cow serum so it may contribute to some areas of rejection but overall they're pretty well tolerated by patients and the only issue is other than being expensive they take about three weeks to grow and they don't come in huge sheets so with that somewhere that doesn't have the availability of to grow these or you need to cover something faster than three weeks brian what else can we use
1: you can also use human allograft. That could be used in a patient that has a large burn and they may lack donor site at the time of initial debridement. What you could do is take to the OR, debride the area, and if it looks like it's healthy and clean, then you can put the allograft. And then when you return to the OR a week or so later, you can assess to see if the allograft is stuck down. If the allograft is not stuck down, then a couple of things could have happened, either just sheared off or just you know not proper wound care. Or there could be an underlying occult infection. And so one thing you could do is take a quantitative biopsy or, for culture. And you can see if it's growing out any organisms greater than 10 to the fifth. And you can see if it needs a further debridement. Maybe another layer needs to be debrided. On the other hand, if the allograft is stuck down and looks like it's fairly good, you can take that off. And if there's skin available, you can autograft using the patient's own skin. Sometimes patient will have one area that has been used as a donor site and needs to heal. And sometimes using allografts is a good temporizing measure until the other donor site readily available for autografting. It also can be used as a diagnostic tool. Like I said, you you put the allograft down, come back to the OR, see if it's stuck down. And that could give you a clue as to what's going on with the wound bed under. And if it's not stuck down and you don't think it's sheared, then that might be a good indication that maybe there's an underlying infection that you can't necessarily see, so that will prompt you to take a biopsy for a culture. Another thing that we can use along the same way is Integra wound matrix. This is made from cross-linked bovine tendon collagen and glycosaminoglycan. So this biodegradable matrix can provide a scaffold for cellular invasion and capillary ingrowth. And the beauty of this, you could put this over exposed bone, tendon, cartilage, and joints. Really, is revolutionary for wound care and really helpful for certain deep wounds that are hard to cover, especially in the acute setting. Only drawback to this is it's kind of expensive and might not be available at your hospital. The way it works is that there is a top layer of silicone that helps protect, keep the area moist. This is also helpful for preventing bacterial colonization. After about two weeks or so, the Integra becomes integrated into the wound bed itself. And at that time, you can remove that top layer of silicone and you can autograft over it. And so in an area that was otherwise not vascular exposed bone or tendon, you can put the Integra away and then we go back to the OR and take off that top layer of the silicone you can just autograph right over it. So it really helps. And sometimes it can buy you enough time until the patient has healed donor site from other autographs. So again, very helpful for patients that have very large burns. Let's go on to talk about burn excision techniques. I'll uh, let you talk about tangential versus fascial excisions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So to get to the point where you can put any of those number of either skin substitutes or autographed on, we need to get rid of the dead tissue. There's going to be two different ways to do this to get down to healthy tissue for tangential excision. It's done by using a wet blade and slowly going layer by layer until you see normal healthy tissue. You want to look for the 3 P's: pearly white dermis, pale yellow fat, patent vessels. There's a good video on this on EDnet with Dr. Cartoto from University of Toronto doing this very nicely. Now, going into a little bit more about tangential versus fascial, do you want to talk about that, Brian?
1: Sure. So the benefit of doing a tangential excision is that you can take out only what you need to so you can keep as much healthy tissue as possible. This is good because it can uh, lead to better contouring in the burned area and you don't over what you have to. The drawback to this is that this tends to be a bloodier technique. It's more time-consuming and requires a keen eye to determine the level of healthy tissue reached. There's also a risk that you leave some non-viable tissue left behind, and if you're going to autograft at the same time, that could lead to autograft failure. The benefit to fascial excision, on the other hand, is that it's easy and quick to perform. The surgical plane is straightforward; it's less vascular, so there's a lot less risk of blood loss. This is typically done for deeper burns and in patients who are in critical condition and just they just need the bad stuff out. So you just need to go to the OR, damage control cut out the burn tissue, take out the source of inflammation
0: and get out. Do you want to touch on tourniquet versus tumescent? Yeah, absolutely. So usually one or the other are used with tangential excisions. Since the fascial excision has minimal blood loss, The both of these offer a benefit for controlling your blood loss in these patients that are already dealing with hypovolemia. It comes at a cost though, because it's not really clearly seen if you're at a healthy level of bleeding. Proponents of the technique will tell you that no matter what, they can still determine healthy tissue base. If you do a tangential excision, and that, that can be true, but opponents will argue otherwise. Bottom line, these patients are critically ill. You need to take all the bad stuff out as quickly and safely as possible. And you want to minimize operative time and also minimize blood loss. One of the other things we want to talk about for these burn patients is inhalation injury. So let's talk about that. And a little bit more specifically, let's talk about what you would do for if you were in the OR and you have an airway fire for an inhalation injury.
1: Yeah, that's disaster. All right. So in order, you would want to first immediately remove the ET tube if you have an airway fire. You want to stop the flow of all airway gases, remove all the sponges and flammable materials from the airway. Once the fire is extinguished, then you're going to work on reestablishing ventilation. Try to avoid oxidizer enriched atmosphere and you want to examine the ET tube for possible fragments left behind. Depending on what you see or don't see, you may need to do a bronch. The incidence of operating room fires in the US is estimated to be about 600 cases per year, which is actually quite a bit. Fire requires the presence of three components, so that's the fuel, the oxidizer and the ignition source. Some common fuels include alcohol-containing PrEP agents like chlorhexidine, drapes and bandages and gowns and other PPE. Ignition sources include electrocautery, lasers, fiber optic light sources and defibrillators. I'm used to the laparoscope light always being on the drapes and the attendings yelling at you that it's going to start a fire. So that's actually true. That can cause a fire. Two of the most common oxidizing agents in the operating room are oxygen and nitrous oxide. So that's something you should be aware of. That can be a question. I think it was a question fairly recently. So just be cognizant of the steps to treat it. And first thing you want to do is, again, remove the ET tube and stop the airway gases. Let's move on to the sequela of burns. And that would be scarring and contracture, especially in large burns. Casey, you want to go over some of
0: that? Yeah. Uh, so because this is such a big problem, like scarring and the contracture of the scars, um, there are some different ways that you can address this. One option is pressure therapy. So this decreases scar contracture when compared to controls in studies. The compressive forces that you're using are in a perpendicular and parallel to the surface of the scar. So opposing the direction of the contracture that will come from that scar. Wound tension, when it was studied, wound tension was found to actually act upon integrins, stretching them, leading to local phosphorylation of focal adhesion kinases and upregulation of smooth muscle actin and collagen production. This suggests that the mechanical forces applied to the scar can actually assist in reducing fibroblast to myofibroblast conversion, decreasing scar contraction, and also decreasing collagen deposition in the wrong areas. Scars with pressure treatment result in smaller, more densely packed collagen fibers, which is great. So for severe burn contractures on these, Brian, what are we going to be doing?
1: Yeah, so for really big and severe burn contracture, you want to consider covering it with
0: fashion cutaneous
1: flap over local tissue and skin graft. Sometimes local tissue won't be available. And so you may have to be doing a free tissue transfer, like free flap or something like that. In terms of splinting the patient, this is actually quite important. The neck should be splinted in slight extension. This is one of the most common reasons patients come back for contractual releases, they can't move their head right, left, up, down, and extension, neck flexion. So you want to make sure you splint them in a way such that they can actually have more mobility and range of motion. The shoulder at 90, elbow at 180 degrees, wrist at slight extension, and hand at intrinsic Plus. Lastly, let's talk about rehab considerations and growth, especially in children. The first thing I'll talk about is oxandrolone. It's sometimes given to patients with major burns, especially in the pediatric population. It's a non-aromatizable testosterone derivative. It has 5% virilizing activity compared to straight-up testosterone. It has low hepatotoxicity. It increases IGF-1 and promotes protein synthesis and anabolism. basically acts like anabolic steroids. It cannot be aromatized to estrogen, unlike testosterone, and thus unlikely to advance bone growth. So it's really safe for children. So it's something that might come up on a question. In children between 7 and 18 years old with a major burn of over 30% total body surface area, it has been shown to improve height, bone mineral content, cardiac work, muscle strength compared to control. No long-term side effects were noted just some other pearls, glutamine and ascorbic acid supplementation can aid in burn recovery. However, it hasn't been shown to have similar effects on bone density as oxandrolone. Several studies support the use of enteric glutamine supplements in the adult burn population. Research has shown that glutamine supplementation is favorable as it has the potential to decrease length of stay and associated costs through improving wound healing and decreasing rates of infection and mortality. There are some other antioxidant therapies including ascorbic acid, glutathione, N-acetyl-L-cysteine, vitamin A, vitamin C, and vitamin E. Alone or in combination have been previously shown to protect microvascular circulation, mitigate changes in cellular energetics, decrease tissue lipid peroxidation, and decrease the volume of fluid required for resuscitation. It's a lot. I think that's pretty much wraps up everything that we have for burn reconstruction and a little bit of critical care. Casey, anything else you want to add or any final thoughts?
0: No, I think it's a big topic. I know that a lot of the medications are, are asked and just kind of going through it and making sure you understand those the equations for the Parkland formula. Don't let them trip you up with that. You guys are going to do great. All right. Well, that's it for
1: today for burn. That was a big topic, but we hope that was helpful. If you like our podcast, spread the word. Tell a friend like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at The Loop Podcast to get in the loop.